So if you got kids up to, I think, third grade, feel free to send them back. We've got a few programs for them during the service. For the rest of us, put your seatbelts on for the next couple of hours. All right. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. I think. <laughs> uh, this morning, we, uh, my wife is in, in the nursery today. She uh, reminded me. I've been having preached in two weeks. Uh, praise the Lord for, for other brothers who can bring God's word. So our brother Warner, a couple of weeks ago, preached from Revelation chapter 2, 18 through 29. And then our brother uh, Bill Decker last week preached from us, uh, to us from Romans 8. Just two good messages. I listened to mourners, and I was here last week. So praise God for his word. Before that, uh, we did kind of a mini-series through some of the, the minor prophets, so one book uh, for each sermon, so kind of one sermon to, to cover the whole book. And the, the last sermon I preached, uh, my wife, who is always my, my rib, and continues to poke me in the rib from time to time, reminded me that joint was long. And I looked back at the sermon, it was an hour and five minutes. So I figured anything below that now is short, right? right? And so right. we'll see where we are this morning as we begin a, a kind of new sermon series briefly through the Psalms. Right, many of us uh, have read the Psalms. Maybe we've heard the Psalms preached. Maybe we've meditated on the Psalms. Maybe we've sung the Psalms. Maybe we've memorized the Psalms. And we mean to preach through the Psalms. Uh, traditionally, I think uh, some of the Psalms are read or preached as if they're kind of standing alone units. Right, we've talked about this before. You kind of pick a psalm, uh, and if you really kind of identify with that psalm, then that becomes your psalm, all right? Uh, that's great. That's fine. All the God's words is sufficient. But really, the psalms are written and organized as a unit. There are 150 psalms. All of them are placed in a specific order to tell a story. And so the psalm we'll look at this Morning is Psalm 107, which is in book five of the Psalms. The Psalms have five books, right? Telling a story. Books one and two make up Psalms 1 through 42, and they tell the story of the rise of God's anointed king, right? David and all those who follow David, the Davidic kings, the, 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 the rise of the dynasty. If you read your Bibles, you know that as God rose up David and rose up Israel, they rebelled against God, and God promised that they would fall. And so books three and four of the Psalms, right, beginning in, in, verse, in, in books uh, three and four are in Psalms 43 through uh, 70 uh, through 106, I'm sorry, uh, tell the story of Israel's exile. They rebelled against God, and God judged them because of their rebellion. Book five, where we begin this, this morning and preach a few psalms from over the next few weeks, tells the story of Israel's exile, but also their return from exile, God bringing them out. Right? So it's the rise, the kind of fall, and then the redemption of God's people. Right? Books one and two, the, the, the rise of the kingdom. Uh, books three and four, the, the fall into exile. And then book five, the redemption from exile. And so I think you'll see a little bit of that. Uh, from our text this morning, but if you haven't already, turn with me to Psalm 107 in your Bibles. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Psalms are so big that if you kind of flip open kind of midway, you'll find them, right? So Psalm uh, 107, if you are using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 506. Psalm 107, page 506. 
the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of joy, uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to dwell in. 
They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. It's one of those books of the Bible or passages that kind of preach itself. You can just preach it by reading it, right? Nonetheless, I've got to preach something, so right. we will work through it. As you kind of look at this psalm, you, you kind of see the, the structure of it, though, don't you? It's a pretty clear structure. Right? The, the, the psalm is it's bookended by, by two commands. Right? It's one there in verse 1, to give God thanks. And the other that, that ends the book in verse 43 to consider or ponder the steadfast love of the Lord. And filled in between those two verses, right, are, are 41 other verses of why we should give God thanks uh, and, and what God specifically wants us to thank him for, right? What he wants us to, to ponder, to consider. And so here's what I think is the, the main idea of Psalm chapter 107. You can find it on page whatever of your bulletin, wherever the sermon notes are, right? God wants us to reflect on all his acts of faithful love and to respond by giving him thanks. Now, I think that's an accurate snapshot of, of Psalm 107, which is why I kind of give these, these main ideas in every sermon. I want you to have at least a grasp of of what every passage or, or, or chapter or even sometimes whole book is about, right? And this is kind of good practice when you read the Bible, right? when you study the Bible. See if in your own words you can come up with one sentence that kind of summarizes what that passage or chapter or book is about, right? The Bible has a meaning. Every passage has a meaning. Again, I think the, the main idea of, of this passage of Psalm 107 is that God wants us to reflect on all his acts of faithful love and to respond by giving him thanks. I mean, two parts of that main idea will serve as the kind of two points as we work through this psalm, just sort of in reverse order. So point number one, God wants us to give him thanks. And point number two, God wants us to reflect on his acts of faithful love. Number one, God wants us to give him thanks. And number two, God wants us to reflect on his acts of faithful love. First, God wants us to give him thanks. And that couldn't be clearer throughout this psalm, could it? I mean, again, verse one starts off, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Amen. And repeat it over and over again in verse 18. I mean, verse 8. And verse 15, and verse 21, and verse 31 is this refrain, let them thank the Lord. 
And just notice the type of statements those are. They're not suggestions or assumptions. They're not questions. They're commands. An imperative is issued. Give thanks to God. Your friends, Psalm 107 could end right there after just the first half of the first verse. God has the right as creator and ruler over us all to give commands, and we are all obliged to follow them. Amen. I mean, simply as our creator, he is due thanks. Amen. He made us. We are his. We belong to him. We owe him thanks. Amen. And our ingratitude to God is what further indebts us to him. I mean, Consider that failing to thank God is sin. Sin that leads to judgment. I mean, think about Romans chapter 1, which talks about our sinful, fallen state apart from Christ. What is one of the hallmarks about us that earns God's judgment? Romans 1.21 says that although they knew God, knew him to be powerful and divine through the things he created, they did not honor him as God, nor give him thanks. Ingratitude is enough to send you to hell. It's something of the starting point down the path of perpetual rebellion. I mean, think about it in your own life. Uh, not being grateful for someone or something leads to discontentment and grumbling and seeking to substitute that someone or something for someone else and something else that can satisfy you, that can truly make you happy and bring you contentment. Well, God says that that someone is limited to himself. He is the only one to whom thanks is ultimately due because of who he is. Amen. Notice that, that, that though God could have given us just a naked command to thank him, the psalmist here instead gives us reasons why we should give him thanks. And the first is there in the second half of verse 1, because he is good. Yeah. This is a, a theological statement about the very nature of God. God is good. Now, that's a concept we might all hold, have all heard. I mean, there's a rich tradition in the black church that at the beginning of a service that the minister stands up and makes a declaration that God is good. Amen. And the congregation responds all the time. Amen. And the minister retorts and all the time. God is good. God is good. Amen. amen and amen, John. But we need to know where we get concepts from, right? This idea that God is good doesn't just stem from the personal experiences of congregants. It, it, it doesn't simply come from the public pronouncement from pastors. No, this idea that God is good comes from the mouth of God himself. God who is the ultimate author of all scripture, when he speaks about himself, here is what shows up at the top of his tagline. God is good. Amen. But what does that mean? 
ain't good for us. It's often kind of on the bottom shelf in the superlative stock room. I mean, there's good, but then there's better, and there's best, right? But, but when the Bible says that God is good, it's not placing anything over or above God. It's not describing God as kind of a little bit over just okay. No, good in the Bible is speaking of God's moral perfection. In him, there is no sin, no wrong, no injustice, no shade or change. He is pure blessedness, pure beneficence, pure goodness. Goodness finds its meaning in him. And apart from him, outside of him, there is no good. That's why when, when, when God told Moses in Exodus 33 that he would make all his goodness pass before him. What he showed Moses was not his good creation or, or some good thoughts. What he showed Moses was himself. The next passage says, the Lord passed by Moses. God's very essence is good. And all things find their goodness only in and through him. God is good. Amen. But just think about how many things tempt us to disbelieve this statement about God. And thus disobey this command to thank him. In difficult circumstances in life. A disrespectful child. A disinterested spouse. A desire to be married that remains unmet, a distant parent, all things that God has put in your life might tempt you to believe that God must not be good. And maybe it's death that constantly encircles us, that takes away dear loved ones shouting with each shed tear that God can't be good. If he was, your loved one would still be here. Amen. It's the devil's constant chatter. As he presents God's commands as killers to your personal freedom and fun and fulfillment. God ain't really good. If he was, would he keep you from this? Friends, who will you believe? Your Circumstances? Yourself? The devil? Or God? God proclaims that he is good. And his goodness isn't just bound up in his person. His goodness is shown to his people. It's displayed in his steadfast love for his people. God's steadfast love is his never-ending, covenant-keeping love towards his covenant people. People whom he's openly and voluntarily entered into a relationship with. People whom God has redeemed, purchased, bought out of slavery and bondage, out of trouble to be with him. They, if anyone, know firsthand the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. And so verse 2 calls them, calls us to open our mouths and say so. Double down and declare with God, declare with the psalmist the truth about God. Uh, praise him and give him thanks. Amen. And, and the immediate choir 
that, that the psalmist calls to sing God's praises here are those who've been rescued or redeemed from exile. And that's what verse, verse 3 means. When it talks about God gathering people in from the lands. In judgment, God scattered the people of Israel, sending them into exile. But God restored his people. He brought them back from bondage in Babylon. In the previous psalm, Psalm 106, if you, if you lift your eyes up to, to verse 47 of Psalm 106, the psalmist there representing the, the people prays to God, Amen. crying out, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your presence, or glory in your praise. Well, here in, in Psalm 107, verse 3, we see that God has answered that prayer. He's gathered his people in from the lands. And what's the proper and appropriate thing for his people to do? Or what they pledged to do when they prayed for rescue in the previous psalm? Thank him. Thank him for who he is and what he's done. He's redeemed us from trouble and God's people ought to testify about it and give him praise. Let the redeemed of the Lord say something about him. And the psalmist here leads the way, starting in verse 4, testifying about how God has faithfully loved his people by rescuing them in every way. He provides vivid and detailed descriptions because God wants us to reflect on every single one of his acts of faithful love. That's point number two. God wants us to reflect on all his acts of faithful love. If you look at it in verses 4 through 32, kind of large section of this psalm, the, the, the psalmist presents four sets of stories picturing God's faithful love to his people. Four experiences that illustrate probably most directly how God has delivered them from exile. But more broadly, how God saves his people from every kind of trouble. You'll notice in each story, the psalmist vividly describes a, a perilous situation. And then how God's people cried to him for help. How God helped. And then what the people should do. Thank him. Look there in verse 4. As the psalmist describes the people of Israel wandering in desert places with nowhere to dwell. Your mind might dart back, dart back to the days when God delivered Israel from Egypt. But then he sent them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion, because they did not trust him. They were hungry and thirsty in dire straits in the desert. That's how the exile felt to Israel as well like a, a wasteland. It wasn't home. The, the plenteous crops and fruitful life that they experienced in the land God had given them, you know, the land that he said would, would flow with milk and honey, that was but a distant memory now. As they sat with the meager rations and the mean reality of life in another city where they dwelled as prisoners. Their, their stomachs hungered. Their mouths were, were parched. 
But more, the end of verse 5 says their souls fainted. You know, it's one thing not to have food or drink. It's another thing to have no hope. They were disheartened, discouraged, desperate. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of exile and brought them back to their city. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God, in other words, provides all his people need. When they hungered before in the wilderness, God gave them bread from heaven. When they thirsted before in the wilderness, God gave them water out of a rock. And his faithfulness does not run out. Remember, his love is steadfast. So as the people hungered and thirsted now in in exile, he gave them what they needed. Deliverance. He brought them to a city where they had no food and water or where they would have food and water and protection from a place where they had none of those. Which, you know, the Lord not only provides for, for our physical needs, he also provides for our spiritual needs. You see, this God not only satisfies stomachs that hunger and thirst for food and drink, but he satisfies those who are spiritually hungry and thirsty. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Amen. How? In him. By him. He is the true bread from heaven. Amen. The bread of life. He says in John chapter 6, verse 34, Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never again thirst. He satisfies the longing soul and fills it with good things. His righteousness, his love, his joy, his peace, his security, himself. Do you find yourself in a wasteland this morning? Is that what life feels like for you? You know, that's where all sin leads to a wilderness, a desert. I mean, you know this, it never truly satisfies you, does it? Right? You can't get high enough, drunk enough. You can't have sex enough. You can't be entertained enough. You keep pouring in more and more and more and more and more and more stuff, and you still find that you are never truly filled. You're still parched. Because you still need Jesus. Friends, feel your need of him. And do what the people of Israel did as hunger, pains, and longing souls pressed in on them. Cry out to God. And trust that he will do for you what he did for them. Deliver you, save you from your distress. God will satisfy you. In verses 10 through 16, the the psalmist presents another picture of God's persistent, covenant-keeping love and saving his people. 
In verse 10, he describes the exile this time in, in terms of captivity. People set in darkness and in the shame of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. And he tells the reason for it all. Verse 11, for or because they rebelled against the words of God and spurred the counsel of the Most High. The exile was judgment for rejecting God, namely rejecting God's word. Whenever we rebel against God's word, it leads to exile. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's word, and it got them exiled from the Garden of Eden. The children of Israel rebelled against God's word, and it got them exiled out of the promised land of Canaan. You and I have rebelled and rejected God's word, and it's gotten us exiled from God's presence. None of us on our own record are going to heaven. You understand that? None of us are okay with God naturally, which is why it's quite presumptuous and prideful when people who've lived lives that totally reject the Lord and his word die, and others remark, rest in peace. Or rest in paradise, player. Or I know he's in a better place. The only place the Bible consistently puts people who oppose God's word is apart from God. Exiled from him, separated from him. That's what hell is. The people of Israel had continually spurned God's word. They did not heed his counsel. The prophets kept on calling out to them, come back to covenant faithfulness to God. What what did they do? They killed the prophets. God kept on giving them his word over and over and over again. But what did they do? They, They took the scrolls and they tore them up and they threw them into the fire. They wanted none of God's word. They listened to the voices of other pagans and their practices and followed their ways. They did not want to follow God's word. They instead followed the world. They disregarded God's word and it led them to destruction. Notice here how the exile is pictured as as darkness, as, as being in the shadow of death. God humbled the pride of his people who exalted themselves above his word. And he gave them hard labor as prisoners in Babylon. But that was for a purpose. You see, God will bring you down in order to bring you in. He humbled them. And when they were brought low, then they remembered God's word and sought his counsel. You see, sometimes it takes some darkness to to see what's truly valuable. And that's like why when you go to a jeweler, right? In order to show you the splendor and the majesty of a diamond, what do they do? They put it up against that little black velvet cloth. Right, you can only see how brilliant that thing is against the dark backdrop. Well, that's something of, of, of how it is here. The people of Israel couldn't see how truly stunning and, and wonderful God's word was in the light of freedom in their own land. So God brought them into the dark dungeons of another land. And there they realized how much they needed God's word how truly valuable it was, all right? Maybe they, as they sat in exile, meditated, remembered on passages like Jeremiah chapter 29, 
where, where God pledged, I, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. When you're in exile, God promises before they went, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with a whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Amen. That promise, when they first received it, didn't seem like much when they were free. But now in exile, it was a precious promise to cling to. And so they cried to the Lord as he instructed them to do in his word and trusted that he would come and rescue them as he said he would. Amen. And verse 13 says he acted according to his word. He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and burst their bonds apart. Let them then thank the Lord for his steadfast love. And wondrous works of children for the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts the bars of iron in two. Now, friends, God can break the strongest chains. No shackles, no guards, no army, no sin can keep his people when he means to bring them out. Amen. Here, the people of Israel here tell the story. The, the mighty Babylonians could not contain them when God worked through Cyrus, the king of Persia, to, to break them free. Hear the apostle Peter tell the story in Acts chapter 12. As he slept in prison, bound with two chains between two soldiers. But he was awakened by an angel of the Lord and the chains fell off. And he walked out of prison. They hear the Apostle Paul tell the story in Acts chapter 16. As he and Silas lay in prison, their feet fastened in stocks and a jailer guarding them. But inside the cell, they were praying and singing. I wonder if they were praying and singing Psalm 107. I mean, it was Paul, after all, who instructed churches to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In any case, as they sang, God sprang the doors of the prison open and loosened their chains so that they walked out free. Amen. Here, the, the, the hymn writer, Charles Wesley, tell the story in his famous hymn, And Can It Be? Recounting God's deliverance from spiritual bondage. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's nights. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Saints, tell your story of how God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light of how he broke you free from the bondage of sin and death and brought you to himself. Remember when you were enslaved to, to gossiping, to slander, 
to greed and manipulation, to lying and drunkenness and sexual immorality. But God rescued you. He redeemed you. He broke the bonds of your sin apart in the broken body of his son for you. God was determined that your sin would not have the final say. That Satan's chokehold on you would not strangle you. So he said, his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly came and lived the perfect life of obedience to God's word that you and I have failed to live. But then who laid down that life and picked up a cross and died the death that we deserve to die for rebelling against God's word, for spurning the counsel of the Most High. Jesus took God's wrath for us. He was killed, he died, and he was buried. His tomb was sealed shut with a large rock and securely guarded with a battalion of soldiers. But God burst the bonds of even death. He shattered the supposedly unshatterable seal around that large rock. And out of that dark tomb, out walked the light of the world. Friends, I say again, God can break the strongest chains, the strongest bonds. And when we turn from our sins and put our trust in Christ, then his life becomes ours. United to him, his perfect obedience becomes ours. Right? His death for sin becomes ours, but also his resurrection from sin becomes ours. God breaking him out from uh, death's grip is what God will do for us. God will free us. From every bondage, from sin and from Satan and even from death. Let us then thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, to the children of Adam. That's what it literally says. Adam rebelled and in him all of us have rebelled, but in the second Adam. Oh, the Lord has given life and in him we live. So live like what you are, free. Know that your old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of death might be put to death. The body of sin might be put to death. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to give over to its lust and its desires. You don't belong to that no more. God has broken you free and you belong to him. And so how you live to give thanks to God is not simply by saying thank you verbally on Sundays, but living a life of gratitude to God Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and on Sunday. All right, well, we don't live lives for the Lord, holy lives, lives that mean to make much of God to earn his salvation. Amen. We live lives holy to God because we've been saved, Amen. because we've been redeemed. And we say, thank you, Lord, Amen. with every single ounce of energy, with all our words, with all our deeds, with as many years as he gives us, we want to say, Lord, thank you for delivering me from the pits of hell so that I might live for you for all my life. been brought out of darkness to live as children of light. You know, former slaves sing when they've been free. Mm. So we should join the freed exiles of Israel. 
in singing praise and thanking God for a far greater freedom. Freedom from sins, bondage, and power in the free life given us through Jesus Christ. The psalmist keeps on testifying. As Bill said last week, there's more, right? The, The psalmist keeps on testifying about God's faithful love expressed in his saving acts. In verse 17, he he notes fools who've been afflicted with sickness, with with physical suffering. Now notice that they're labeled fools not because of any intellectual deficiencies, but due due to their spiritual depravity. Notice they've become fools through their sinful ways. So afflicted are they that they they don't even desire food anymore, verse 18 says. Now, when a person gives up eating, they basically have given up on life. It's an apt description of the condition of the Israelites under Babylonian siege. They were afflicted and weary, weakened at the point of giving up the will to live. I mean, go back this week and read through Lamentations and see how horrible the conditions were under Babylon. I mean, Jeremiah talks about my, my, my stomach is churning within me. Bow comes out of my mouth. It was a horrible experience. There was no desire to live in that kind of condition. Nevertheless, as they drew near what felt like certain death, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. Verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. God's word is life-giving. It gives hope to the hopeless and life to the lifeless. Consider his kindness then in giving us his word. That Bible in your hand or that Bible in your iPad in your hands is meant to give you comfort and restoration and rescue. Do not keep a closed Bible if you want to live, that is. If you don't want to be sick in the soul, then open your Bible, the only Bible, the only words that God has personally sent to give you life. His word is sent out to heal us. Read God's word personally. Counsel other people with God's word. Evangelize with God's word. It gives life to the weary. You You know the same word that people rebelled against in verse 11? Remember they they say they rebelled against the word of the Lord? Well, it's that same word that saves. It was God's word that promised that the people would be exiled for their rebellion, which they ignored. They ignored that part of God's word. They rebelled against it. They didn't take God seriously. But that word also promised that God would bring them out of exile. His word heals the afflicted people. Brings them out of death. Let them then thank the Lord for his steadfast love, uh, for his wondrous works toward the children of man. The last of these four stories, these four illustrations showing God's love and rescuing his people from trouble is found in in verses 23 through 32. There we see the trouble expressed through the experience of sailors facing a great storm on the sea. If you read through the Psalms, troubles are often likened to storms. Or raging waters. Verse 25 says, God raises up a a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. The the waves were so large that it seemed to to mount up to heaven, the text says. 
They rocked the boat and the men as they staggered like drunken men trying to stay upright. Their great courage as great seamen melted away in the face of the fierce waters. And after all they could do, uh, working as hard as they could to control the situation or make it better, the end of verse 27 says, they were at their wit's end. The end of the rope. We can't do anything else. They had nowhere else to turn. That's exactly where God likes to have you sometimes. That's a good place to be at wit's end. Because the text tells us that then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the waves of the storm still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, it's hard to to track this story to to any one experience of the people of Israel. I mean, details of of God rescuing sailors in in Jonah's day from the storm might might immediately come to mind. But, But again, the larger idea of these stories is to express God's rescue of his people from exile. And so some details, while seemingly describing specific instances, are are, are meant to illustrate more broadly the exile. I mean, consider Isaiah chapter 54, verse 11, where the prophet addresses Israel in the time of exile as the afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Oh, but they would be comforted. Because the same God who causes the storm calms the storm. The God who brings calamity also brings comfort. God who raised up the Babylonians like raging waters to judge his people for their sin also subdued the Babylonians and put them down. He made them like still waters in releasing his people from their rule. He would not. He could not sit idly by as if he didn't care while his people were being ravaged. His heart, his love for his people would not let it. So so when they called on him for help, he stepped in and crushed, hushed their enemies. Fast forward several hundred years. And it's a situation similar as you find 12 disciples, many of whom were experts on the sea, Nonetheless, out on the Sea of Galilee, being rocked by winds and waves. And so they called out to Jesus in their trouble. Save us, O Lord, for we are perishing. And he delivered them from their distress. Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? As committed Jews, they would have known the Psalms. And as they recovered from the shock of the moment, maybe they meditated on this song, that only the Lord can hush the harsh waters of the sea. And that the man before them, Jesus, was not just a man, but the Lord God become man. His heart for his people put him in the heart of the storm with them on earth, on a boat, in trouble to deliver them. 
Let all his people then thank the Lord Jesus for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. You see, that's what this psalm is meant to do. To cause us to look back at all the ways that God has demonstrated his love for us. And to praise him for it. To give him thanks for delivering us from past trouble. And this psalm encourages us to go to God in our present troubles. And to seek his help. Now, some of us are quite used to doing this. But have you found how, how sometimes you're dissuaded from doing that? I mean, your heart tells you you can't go to God. Satan deceptively tells you you, you can't go to God. It's not because you don't think that God can't help. It's that you feel quite guilty that you only see to go to, seem to go to him when you're in deep trouble to cry to him for help. Amen. You know that voice that pops up in your head. You know you ain't been reading your Bible. When was the last time you prayed? You don't go to church very consistently. Look at all the dirt you done did. Look at your internet history. Look at your text messages. Look at what you said to your friends last week or your wife last night. And now you're going to cry out to God when you're in trouble? You're terrible. Well, you know, sometimes we have to fess up and admit where we're wrong. Sometimes we don't need to just talk to ourselves. We need to talk back. Yes, it's true that I've denied God time and time again. Yes, it's true that I've neglected to, to follow wholeheartedly after him as I should. Amen. Yes, it's true I've lived as if I was my own God on my own counsel and apart from his will. But wisdom says I can't continue to live that way. Wisdom says that today, in the midst of this trouble, I need to turn away from the way I used to live, the things I've been doing, and turn to the only God who I know can help me. Amen. I mean, isn't that what the prodigal son did? He knew that he had spurned his father's counsel. He had lived a profligate life apart from his father. But the text tells us that, that at some point he came to his senses. And he realized that he was in deep trouble. And he didn't say to himself, well, I've been treating my father bad for so long, I can't go to him now. No, in his trouble, he said, I'm going to go to my daddy and plead to him for help. And what did we find? What did he meet? He did not meet a father who said, get away from me. Stay away from me. Don't come to me now when your life is in a mess. No, what he found was that as he ran hard after his father when he met him he met his father running hard after him on the other side saying come to me in your trouble i am here to help you Amen. the father brought him out of his trouble and brought him back into his home the father took him out of his mess and put a robe on him and a gold ring on him and said slaughter the fattened calf because this my son who was dead is now alive he's home Amen. that's what god does to us you can come as nasty as your life has been, covered in the filth of sin as if you've been in a pig's pen. And when you smarten up, or when God by his spirit causes you to smarten up, and you go to him, he will not reject you. He will not say, go away from me. You only come to me when life is a mess. He says, I've caused your life to be a mess so you can come to me to save you. Amen. You ain't got to clean yourself up. The Lord will handle that. 
go to the Lord in your trouble and he will deliver you. Amen. Friends, I pray that that would give you hope this morning. I pray that would give you help. Some of us need to know that the Lord delivers his people. You'll find that he delivers his people. So practically, some of us just need to pray this morning and trust that God can and will deliver us from every kind of hardship. You see, the different descriptions that the psalmist tells of the same trouble here is meant to, to remind us that, that though troubles might feel like raging storms and iron shackles and terrible sickness and a dry desert, that God rescues. Right? It reminds us that nothing is too hard for him. So what's this addiction that, that you or your family member is struggling with to, to God? What's this unsaved child or unsaved spouse that you are so concerned with to, to God? What's this seemingly unconquerable temptation that you've been uh, haggled with all your life that you feel like you can't break free from to God? What is that to the Lord? He delivers out of every kind of hardship. Keep praying for deliverance. God loves to answer prayers because he loves his people and loves to show his steadfast love towards them. Come back this evening at 5 p.m. We're going to bring and take some, some shackle-like and storm-like troubles to the Lord and ask him to deliver us. Amen. Folks, don't stop praying. Don't stop crying out to the Lord. I mean, if you helped me celebrate my 40th birthday last week, sneakily, which I'm grateful for. But a few of y'all have known me long enough to, to remember a time when church folk wouldn't be invited to a birthday celebration. Or well, certainly wouldn't want to come. You'd have known me at 18 or 20 or 22 or 25 or 26. You would have wanted to stay as far away from me as possible if you were a Christian. Because my life was out of control, spiraling out of control, dead in sin and loving it and living for it. But while I kept plunging deeper and deeper into darkness, kept shackling myself with more and more chains of sin, my mother kept crying out to the Lord. My uncles and aunts kept crying out to the Lord, and it seemed to take forever. They were crying out to the Lord for decades, and guess what? The Lord delivered me from my distress. The Lord loves to answer the prayers of his people, so don't stop praying for your child or your spouse or your friends or your neighbor or yourself. Amen. The Lord brings deliverance when his people cry to him for help. Amen. We should pray to God. Amen. And we should praise God. I mean, I know the testimony of some of you. Some of you literally were on the ground ducking for cover in moments of intense and immediate trouble, crying out to the Lord to deliver you. And the Lord did it. Amen. Let his people then praise him. Amen. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. The Lord is good and he's Amen. good to his people. Amen. That's our duty. To give God praise, to give him thanks when he's acted in marvelous ways. You see, despite our inconsistency, he is consistent. It's not our steadfast living that results in God's acting for us. It's his steadfast love for us that changes us, changes our circumstances. I notice how the psalmist closes this psalm. 
by meditating on how God reverses the fortunes of his people. Now look at verse 33. He, he turns the rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste. Amen. Sometimes God turns things for the worse. God judges. I mean, he is a good God. Amen. And so he must judge sin. He turned the once prosperous land of his people into a wilderness as the Babylonians invaded and ransacked the place and destroyed everything. They burned down the temple and stripped the land bare because the people of Judah did evil. God judges. He turns things that were good to, to bad for rebellion. But God also turns things from bad to good. He, he blesses. Amen. He is a good God. And so he must show love. He lovingly transformed the people's plights. And so verse 35, he, he turns that same desert into pools of water. Amen. That parched land he turns into springs of water. There he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to dwell in. Amen. Drop down to verse 41. God raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. God afflicts, but God raises up the afflicted. That's Israel's story. That's our story as the covenant people of God Amen. who've experienced his covenant-keeping love. And God wants us to meditate continually on his faithful love. Amen. Again, look at the command of verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. Has your heart grown cold towards God? Have you found yourself drifting back into the foolish ways of sin? Are you here this morning doubting God's goodness? Amen. Well, God gave us Psalm 107 to help us remember God, to remember all his acts of faithful love for you. He sent you help time and time again. He sent you his very son to suffer and die for you and lead you out of sin's exile and into an eternal kingdom with him. Consider, reflect upon all God's acts of faithful love Amen. and respond by giving him thanks. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that reminds us about your works. Lord, we pray that, that you would produce in us praise fitting for your person. Lord, we pray that you would produce in us gratitude instead of grumbling as we consider that we are far better than we should be. We're in a far better place than we deserve. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. Lord, we pray that you would transform our songs of of mourning and in gratitude to songs of joy, praising you alone for your great redemption of us. Amen. Lord, help us to be conduits of praise that others might be taught Amen. to give thanks to God for his steadfast love. Amen. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.